Book One, Chapter Three of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book One, The Boy Poet, eighteen nineteen to eighteen forty two. Chapter Three. Perfervidium Ingenium, eighteen twenty six to eighteen thirty. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. The first dated poem was written a month before little John Ruskin reached the age of seven. It is a tale of a mouse in seven octosyllabic couplets. The needless alarm, remarkable only for an unexpected correctness in rhyme, rhythm, and reason. His early verse owes much to the summer tours, which were prolific in notes. Everything was observed and turned into verse. The other inspiring source was his father, the household deity of both wife and child, whose chief delight was in his daily return from the city and in his reading to them in the drawing-room at Herne Hill. John was packed into a recess, where he was out of the way and the draught. He was barricaded by a little table, that held his own materials for amusement, and if he liked to listen to the reading, he had the chance of hearing good literature, the chance sometimes of hearing passages from Byron and Christopher North and Cervantes, rather beyond his comprehension, for his parents were not of the shockable sort. With all their religion and strict Scotch morality, they could laugh at a broad jest as old-fashioned people could. So he associated his father and his father's readings with the poetry of reflection, as he associated the regular summer round with the poetry of description. As every summer brought its crop of description, so against the new year, for, being Scotch, they did not then keep our Christmas, and against his father's birthday in May, he used always to prepare some little drama or story or address of a reflective nature, beginning with the verses on Time, written for New Year's Day, 1827. That year they were again at Perth, and on their way home some early morning frost suggested the not ungraceful verses on the icicles at Glenfarg. By a childish misconception, the little boy seems to have confused the real valley that interested him so with Scott's ideal Glen Derg, and, partly for this reason, to have found a greater pleasure in the monastery, which he thereupon undertook to paraphrase in verse. There remain some hundreds of doggerel rhymes, but his affection for that particular novel survived the fatal facility of his octosyllabics and reappears time after time in his later writings. Next year, 1828, their tour was stopped at Plymouth by the painful news of the death of his aunt Jessie, to whom they were on their way. It was hardly a year since the bright little cousin, Jessie of Perth, had died of water on the brain. She had been John's especial pet and playfellow, clever like him and precocious, and her death must have come to his parents as a warning, if they needed it, to keep their own child's brain from overpressure. It is evident that they did their best to keep him back. They did not send him to school for fear of the excitement of competitive study. His mother put him through the Latin grammar herself, using the old Adams manual which his father had used at Edinburgh High School. Even this old grammar became a sort of sacred book to him, and when at last he went to school, and his English master threw the book back at him, saying, That's a Scotch thing, the boy was shocked and affronted, 
as which of us would be at the criticism for our first instrument of torture. He remembered the incident all his life, and pilloried the want of tact with acerbity in his reminiscences. They could keep him from school, but they did not keep him from study. The year 1828 saw the beginning of another great work, Eudocia, a poem on the universe. It was printed with even greater neatness and labour, but this too, after being toiled at during the winter months, was dropped in the middle of its second book. It was not idleness that made him break off such plans, but just the reverse, a too great activity of brain. His parents seem to have thought that there was no harm in this apparently quiet reading and writing. They were extremely energetic themselves and hated idleness. They appear to have held a theory that their little boy was safe so long as he was not obviously excited, and to have thought that the proper way of giving children pocket money was to let them earn it. So they used to pay him for his literary labours. Homer was one shilling a page, composition one penny for twenty lines, mineralogy one penny an article. The death of his Aunt Jessie left a large family of boys and one girl to the care of their widowed father, and the Ruskins felt it their duty to help. They fetched Mary Richardson away and brought her up as a sister to their solitary son. She was not so beloved as Jessie had been, but a good girl and a nice girl, four years older than John, and able to be a companion to him in his lessons and travels. There was no sentimentality about his attachment to her, but a steady fraternal relationship, he, of course, being the little lord and master. But she was not without spirit, which enabled her to hold her own, and perseverance, which sometimes helped her to eclipse, for the moment, his brilliancy. They learned together, wrote their journals together, and shared alike with the scrupulous fairness which Mrs. Ruskin's sensible nature felt called on to show. And so she remained his sister, and not quite his sister, until she married, and after a very short married life, died. Another accession to the family took place in the same year, 1828. The Croydon aunt, too, had died and left a dear dog, Dash, a brown and white spaniel, which had first refused to leave her coffin, but was coaxed away and found a happy home at Hearn Hill and frequent celebration in his young master's verses. So the family was now complete. Papa and Mama, Mary and John and Dash. One other figure must not be forgotten. Nurse Anne, who had come from the Edinburgh home and remained always with them, John's nurse and then Mrs. Rushkin's attendant, as devoted and as censorious as any old-style Scottish servant in a storybook. The year 1829 marked an advance in poetical composition. For his father's birthday he made a book more elaborate than any, sixteen pages in a red cover, with a title page quite like print. Battle of Waterloo, a play, in two acts, with other small poems dedicated to his father, by John Ruskin, 1829, Hearn Hill, Dulwich. To this are appended, among other pieces, fair copies of Skiddaw and Derwent Water. A recast of these, touched up by some older hand and printed in the Spiritual Times for February 1830, may be called his first appearance in type. An illness of his postponed their tour for 1829 until it was too late for more than a little journey in Kent. He has referred his earliest sketching to this occasion but it seems likely that the drawings attributed to this year were done in 1831. He was, however, busy writing poetry. At Tunbridge, for example, 
he wrote that fragment on happiness which catches so cleverly the tones of young a writer whose orthodox moralizing suited with the creed in which john ruskin was brought up alternating be it remembered with don quixote coming home he began a new edition of his verses on a more pretentious scale than the old red books in a fine bound volume exquisitely printed with the poems dated this new energy seems to have been roused by the gift from his croydon cousin charles a clerk in the publishing house of smith elder and co of their annual friendships offering mrs ruskin in a letter of october the thirty first eighteen twenty nine finds the poetry very so-so but john evidently made the book his model he was now growing out of his mother's tutorship and during this autumn he was put under the care of dr andrews for his latin he relates the introduction in praetorita and more circumstantially in a letter of the time to mrs monroe the mother of his charming mrs richard gray the indulgent neighbour who used to pamper the little gourmand with delicacies unknown in severe mrs ruskin's dining-room he says in the letter this is at ten years old well papa seeing how fond i was of the doctor and knowing him to be an excellent latin scholar got him for me as a tutor and every lesson i get i like him better and better for he makes me laugh almost if not quite to use one of his own expressions the whole time he is so funny comparing neptune's lifting up the wrecked ships of aeneas with his trident to my lifting up a potato with a fork or taking a piece of bread out of a bowl of milk with a spoon and as he is always saying things of that kind or relating some droll anecdote or explaining the part of virgil the book which i am in very nicely i am always delighted when mondays wednesdays and fridays are come dr andrews was no doubt a genial teacher and had been a scholar of some distinction in his university of glasgow but mrs ruskin thought him flighty as well she might when after six months greek he proposed in march eighteen thirty one to begin hebrew with john it was a great misfortune for the young genius that he was not more sternly drilled at the outset and he suffered for it through many a long year of struggles with deficient scholarship the doctor had a large family and pretty daughters one who wrote verses in john's notebook and sang tamborgi mrs orme lived until eighteen ninety two in bedford park the other lives in coventry patmore's angel in the house when ruskin thirty years later wrote of that doubtfully received poem that it was the sweetest analysis we possess of quiet modern domestic feeling few of his readers could have known all the grounds of his appreciation or suspected the weight of meaning in the words End of Book 1, Chapter 3 Recording by Graham Arrowsmith